question of our Lord Jesus Christ, what if things didn't do what they were supposed to do? You go to the tap and you open it, what do you expect to come out? Water. But what if raw sewage came out? Or what if you planted your garden and tended it in the spring, and when it was time to harvest, every plant, every vegetable had produced but one fruit, dead tarantulas? When things don't do what they're supposed to do, if that was the way the world wasn't working, it would be horrifying, wouldn't it? What if people don't do what they're supposed to do? People can passively just refuse to fulfill their office. Think of a sentry who is in charge of the security of his company and he falls asleep in the night and at dawn the enemy attacks and wipes out his company. The sentry didn't do what he was supposed to do and it brings grief, horror, death. It's even worse when A human being doesn't just passively fail to do their office, but actively does the opposite. Think of a doctor or a nurse charged with caring for patients, with healing them, and they're discovered instead killing their patients. It sometimes happens, thankfully very rarely, but it sometimes happens. It comes in the news, and it's horrifying because they're doing the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Now, we live in a world in which things and in which people are doing the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, describes a world plunged into sin, a creation groaning in bondage to corruption, and a humanity in which all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we were made to worship. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we're not doing that. And that is the source of all of the misery in this world. Now, Paul, as he goes through the letter to the Romans, it's kind of structured like the Heidelberg Catechism. It's it's sin, salvation, service, it's sin and misery, it's deliverance from sin, and then thankfulness. And he has described in the beginning of the book the misery and the corruption of the fallen world and the fallen human race. Then he has gone on to describe how God, in his sovereign, gracious acts of salvation in Christ Jesus, has chosen to set his love and his grace upon unworthy sinners, to forgive them and to heal them, to sanctify them, and to transform them by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so he's going through what would connect with the first two parts of the catechism. And in chapter 12, he comes to what would be the third part, thankfulness. If sin was the problem, and if God's grace has given us a way out of the problem, What now? What now? Well, now, says Paul, you can do what you were made to do. You can be who you were made to be. And that is, you can worship. You can be 
a worshiper. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul uses the language of appeal. He doesn't use the language of legalism. He doesn't say, hey, Christians, be good. Do the right thing or you're going to hell. That's not what he says. Paul says, look, Christian, look who God is. Look what God has done. I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. Look at chapter 11, verse 32 there. Just a few verses before our text. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Why would God have mercy on unworthy sinners? Why would God save unworthy sinners? And Paul says, I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is this, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul says, I don't understand God's sovereign grace, God's electing love. All I can do is worship him. And that's what he does in verse 36. For to him... And through him, or from him and through him, and, and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Paul looks at the sovereign electing love of God in Christ, and he worships. And then he calls on the believers, based on this mercy, I appeal to you, brothers, by the sovereign mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship God. Do what you were made to do. Now, in Paul's time, if you talk to anybody on the street, and you said, well, what does worship have to include? Everybody would understand that worship was unthinkable without a sacrifice. Now, we're, we're 2,000 years on after the one-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which did away with blood sacrifices. So we're two millennia of the habit of Christians at worshiping in a bloodless way. But back in the time of Paul writing to the Romans, this was a a very, very innovative thing. It was a very strange thing. Worship for the ancient world meant killing things and bringing dead animals as sacrifice. And Paul says, everything's changed because of Jesus. Everything's changed because of the work of God in Christ. Come with a sacrifice which is Living. You see that verb there in the in the in the in the in the in the text, present your bodies. That verb there is in a verbal tense which which communicates the idea of presenting completely, presenting in an ongoing way. It's not just a single act, it is a way of life. 
That's who you are. That's what you do. You present your body as a living sacrifice. That is the state in which you live. And that word sacrifice there in our text is not just any word for an offering, for bringing something to God, saying, here, God, have this. No, it is a word which has the, the meaning of a total, complete, whole sacrifice. Behind the word is the idea of everything going up in smoke, everything being totally immolated. And so Paul is calling the Christian to an act of total dedication. Nothing held back. It's all given over to God. And so Paul calls the believers to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, where do you bring sacrifices? Well, you bring sacrifices in the temple. And where is the temple? Well, what does Paul say to the Corinthians? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So there it is. The scripture says, you, all of you, your body, and in scriptural anthropology and the scriptural understanding of what man is, your body includes your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, everything you are. You are a living temple. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And at the same time, you, all of you, your body, heart, soul, mind, strength, you are called to give yourself as an act of continuous worship, holy and acceptable. Now, holy means set apart for God, set apart for the worship of God. The, whole, the Old Testament temple was a holy building. You couldn't use it as a barn for six days and then on the seventh day use it for worship. It was a holy place. It was set apart for God's service. That's who you are today. You are a holy temple, not just for Sundays, not just when you're sitting around the table reading the Bible, not just when you're at Bible study, but all the time, in every way, you are set apart as a very temple of worship to the living God. And Paul calls on the believer then to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that means that we don't choose how God is to be worshipped. God sets the standards. What does the scripture say? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God decides what true worship looks like. And then Paul continues in the end of the verse, this is your spiritual worship. And that word spiritual, if you look at a bunch of different translations, you'll notice that there are many options for translating that word spiritual. Sometimes it is translated reasonable or even rational. It's a hard word to translate. The word there is the noun logos transformed into an adjective. Now, you know how that works, right? 
if you have the noun beauty, you can change it into an adjective by adding for, beautiful. Beautiful is describes something which has beauty, which is full of beauty. And here the word is logos for. If we would kind of turn it into an adjective from the word logos. And of course, the word logos, you remember, is the word used in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word in John chapter 1 in the Greek is logos, the Word, logos. And so Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your logos full worship. Which is your reasonable worship, which is worship in spirit and truth, which is worship, which is Christ-full. So it's not mere rituals. It's not empty symbols, but it is Christ-focused. It is spirit-filled worship with every aspect of our being involved. As we know the truth of God and the God of truth, as the Father of glory enlightens the eyes of our understanding, and as we worship Him for who He is and for what He has done, we worship Him with all of our being. All of us. Not just mindless physical rituals, but neither disembodied so-called higher states of mind but the entire person is engaged in biblical worship, New Testament biblical worship, our emotions and our mouths and our ears. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our physical presence is part of biblical worship. What does the psalm say? Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And our hands are involved The scripture says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. We come bearing gifts for the poor. The apostle says on the first day of the week, set aside a sum of money for the poor. We lift up our hands to the holy place and we bless the Lord. We clasp our hands in prayer. We bow our heads in worship. We welcome other believers with the right hand of fellowship. And we greet one another with a holy kiss, although maybe in our culture it's a holy hug. And we bring hearts which are sacrifices. The sacrifices of God, says the psalmist, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the whole person is involved in worship. And that's not just sometimes, but it is a way of life. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6, 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The life of Christian worship is a life of continual Use of the entire body as instruments for righteousness. And I'll just quickly 
run through three texts which connect the body with sacrifices pleasing to God. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, that's the first text. Philippians 4, 18, where Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the faithful support of gospel ministry is an act of the body and the mind being a living sacrifice. It is a pleasing sacrifice to God. And then we look at Hebrews 13, 15. If you turn there, Hebrews 13, verse 15. And the scripture says, through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So Christ's full worship is the fruit of our lips. Our bodies are involved. We believe with the heart. We confess with the mouth. And then look at the next verse. If you're still there in Hebrews chapter 13, the next verse, chapter 13, verse 16 do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There again, sharing, doing good are acts of worship. We use our mind to perceive the need. We use our will to choose self-sacrificial love. We use our bodies to take our goods and to share. These are acts of worship. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice with our bodies. And Paul sums it all up very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The Christian life is a life of continual, perpetual, unceasing Acts of worship. Every little thing you do is an act of worship. This is who we are. We are living temples. We are living sacrifices. We are full-time worshipers. In the Old Testament temple was a holy place. It was dedicated for one purpose. It was dedicated to be a place of holy worship. And that has been transferred to you. You are the temple of God in the world. You are the place of continual worship, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the climax of the week of worship is the gathering of many living stones in that great edifice, the church, the congregation, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, if one Christian is a continuous hive of worship activity, then the congregation of many Christians is even a greater intensity of worship. It is a taste of heaven. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 10, when Paul rejoices in the gospel that in Christ we can go beyond the veil and enter in the very heavenly places, we can come to worship in the very holy of holies of the universe, the real one, not the, not the, not the fake one, not the, the shadow here on earth. That was the Old Testament temple. We can come in Christ before the Father in worship. And then Paul, in light of that, he says, 
let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As there are wars and rumors of wars, as there are plagues and earthquakes and every type of catastrophe, as the signs of the impending end of the world come closer and intensify, we are called to intensify our desire to be gathered in worship. That is who we are, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the essence of the character of the church is that she is a gathered people. She is a congregation. She is an holy assembly. Church is not like McDonald's. When you need a snack, you go through the drive-through. That's not the way the church works. You don't just come for yourself to get your dose of grace, your dose of, of, of Bible teaching for the week. It is not a place for individuals to get their shot of faith so that they can keep living in glorious isolation. But the church is the family of God. And we belong together. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people chosen to worship. That's why we pray our Father. We don't pray my Father who is in heaven. We pray our Father. That's why we sit together at the Lord's table and we eat together and we drink together because we are one body with, one, with many members and with voices united, our praises we offer. We meet together in the presence of God where there are the word and the sacraments God speaks to us. And the time of public worship, brother and sister, is the time when heaven and earth meet. And in Christ, we are lifted up to come before the throne of the universe. And there is nothing more appropriate than to do that together as much as we can. Now, the essence of hell is loneliness and isolation and cursing God and the neighbor. And the essence of heaven is fellowship and communion and glorifying God and loving our neighbor. And the way we choose to spend our Sundays is a litmus test for the way that we will spend eternity. If we despise the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, if we despise the gathering and the assembly of God's people, then that says something about our eternal destination. And so in the name of God, brother and sister, let not fear or anger or any impediment, internal or external, prevent you from obeying the call to worship. We must gather. We must worship. We must be together in the presence of God. Moses 
came down from the mountain with his face blazing with light because the more time you spend in the presence of God, you reflect who he is. You reflect his glory. And down at the bottom of the mountain, they were fiddling with all kinds of fake innovations. They were saying, we're worshiping Yahweh, and there were golden calves, and there were all kinds of godless and immoral rituals, and they rose up to play and to fornicate, and their worship led to death. It is a terrible thing to start deciding for ourselves how God is to be worshipped. God calls us into his presence to meet with him, and he speaks life and light into the darkness and death of this fallen world. And we must obey. Are you afraid of the darkness? Come worship the light of the world. Are you afraid of getting sick? Come worship the great healer. Are you afraid of the growing tyranny? Then come worship the son. If he sets you free, you are free indeed. Are you afraid that you are too sinful? Then come worship the God who removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Are you afraid of death? Then come worship the Lord of life. And when all is going well, and when life is full of joy and victories, come worship and give thanks. And when all is going badly, and life is full of pain and setbacks, and everything is stripped away from you, Come, worship. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And even if he reduce me to absolutely nothing, I will do like brother Job who tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brother and sister, we were made to worship. And we have been remade in Christ to worship in every circumstance, in every situation, in every stage of life, in every condition. We must worship. We will worship because we were made to worship and because he is worthy of worship. And as we come together on the Lord's day, then in Christ we are lifted up as to be part of that universal service of worship which never ends. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing." and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.